All right. Well, gentlemen, my name is Matthew Heller. I'm uh, uh, one of the small administrative team that uh, Dr. Clausen has put together to, to assist him. Both Marco and I here are uh, uh, on staff at the church, so we're here um, throughout the week, and we just helped Dr. Uh, Clausen with sort of managing this giant group of men that, that you are. So it's a pleasure to be with you. And for tonight, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, um, Dr. John Street is one of our beloved elders here at the church, and he has been so for 22 years, so faithfully shepherding us, and even even more so through the most difficult time that we have seen um, through this COVID season. So we're so grateful, Dr. Street, for your guidance and your leadership in our church and your faithfulness as an elder. Of course, Dr. Street is also a pastor here. He is the pastor of Joint Heirs. Um, uh, fellowship group. Many of you know him in that way. Um, Dr. Street is also the chair of the uh, Master's in Biblical Counseling at the Master's University, and uh, as well as a professor in that same program at TMU. Um, Dr. Street also is a professor at the Master's Seminary, uh, where he is the man who trains the men at the Master Seminary in biblical counseling. And I have the privilege to have benefited from that very much so. So thank you, Dr. Street. Um, Dr. Street is also the president of the ACBC Biblical Counseling Association. Um, if you don't know much about that, it is a phenomenal uh, biblical counseling association in which we here at Grace are a training center for them. And uh, all of our biblical counselors are certified through that organization. Dr. Street is the president, and uh, he is a giant in the world of biblical counseling. And so we are in for a great treat, and uh, we're so grateful that you're here, sir. Um, great to be here. Great. Excellent. Yes, great. let's welcome him. A lot of people don't know that Dr. Street is actually a scholar. I, I remember in this class, and I was impressed by that the most, I, I think your desire was to be a Hebrew professor, right? Yeah. And I remember that, and I, I love that about Dr. Street. He is in Scripture. He is a counselor that knows Scripture well and uses well, and you will see that tonight. And he traveled all over the world. We met many times um, on the mission field, a lot of times in Germany, many good um, just times we spend there with your wife, my wife, and the ministry in Germany where I come from, so the accent is on purpose. So, That's right. yeah, we're we are very excited to have you. Yeah. So basically, gentlemen, what it's going to look like tonight is simple. It's a Q&A format, and the questions that we'll be asking Dr. Street have been collected from your group leaders. So these are your questions that your leaders have been collecting through your conversation and through your discipling and through your discussions. So these are from you. So this is a wonderful opportunity to get some answers to those questions. Um, so enough from us. Let's just hop right in and let's hear Dr. Street. Um, and we'll start with our first question. It's sort of a big picture, broad term question, Dr. Street. What do you think, since our topic is biblical manhood and uh, protecting the mind and thinking like a Christian, what do you think might be the three most important characteristics of being a godly man in general? All right, that's a great one. Uh, how do you boil down everything that Jesus Christ is into three statements? But Jesus Christ ultimately is going to be the representative of, of masculinity and being a godly man. 
everything you study about him has got to be um, exactly what we as believers who are committed to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior need to be committed to uh, being like. We need to be like him. And that's, that should be a driving force more than anything. So when you summarize the Lord Jesus Christ, you summarize it, him, and anytime you're going to do that, you're always going to, um, in a sense, uh, violate something in terms of who he is as a godly man, because you're going to leave something critical out. But let me highlight a few things that are especially relevant to us in our culture today. One of the things that highlights the masculinity of Christ, I believe, is humility. That's such a key element today, because um, the world has basically indoctrinated us in the culture around us in relationship to pride. And of course, you know how James talks about God resists the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. And this is, this is what a godly man is supposed to be like. He's supposed to be humble in everything that he does. Humility has got to characterize his life from first to last. It is a characteristic that even back during the first century was demeaned by the Greeks and the Romans. And, and yet Jesus Christ elevated the concept of humility to be a, a, a supreme virtue. You can see this throughout the New Testament in relationship to the Gospels, and you can see it also in the epistles, too, with uh, many of the epistles and how they highlight the humility of Christ. So if I were to sum up one key area, it would be that. Now, of course, when we're talking about that, I'm not talking about humility the way the world defines humility, in the sense that this is a person who's passive, kind of a milk toast. Um, person who shrinks into the background. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about someone who very much is firm in what they believe, very confident in what they believe. There's a major trust in the Lord in everything that they do. And so as a result of that, they don't have to demand their rights. They don't have to demand certain things from other people in order to get what they want because they trust what the Lord is doing and they trust the kind of people that the Lord brings into their life. Uh, this is one of the key things where I think a lot of men become very uh, worldly, even though they call themselves Christian, because they allow anger to take over. And at that particular point, then that's really, that anger is fed by personal pride in that person's heart. Sometimes it's anger towards a wife, sometimes it's anger towards children, sometimes it's anger towards a close friend, and this is where pride takes over when that's absolutely unnecessary if you're really trusting what God is doing in your life. So humility has got to be a, a key characteristic of, of who Jesus Christ is and what a genuine man of God is like. Um, you could really rightly characterize it as strength being under control. That's, that's a good description of humility. It is strength being under control, and a person like that is, is, um, is, as a result of that, very humble and lowly. You can see this in Philippians chapter 2, right? Uh, who, speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, 
took upon himself the form of a servant and came in the likeness of a man. So if we were to emulate him, we would be exactly like that, uh, not asserting our rights or demanding our way. That's got to be a, a critical aspect of genuine masculinity. There's a second thing that I think is really critical. And the other one, the second one has to do with love. First one's humility, the, the second thing is love. Because there's a misconception in our culture today that it's the woman's role to fill the home with love. That's not true. The Bible says that it's a man's role to do that. Ephesians 5 very clearly talks about it's the man's role to fill the home with love. But now the question comes, is it the, what kind of love are we talking about? Are we talking about a love the way the world defines love, where you are able to love those who are lovely? Anybody can do that. If you have your Bible, I want you to grab it just for a moment and go over to Matthew 5 just for a moment. Let's illustrate it from the words of the Lord Jesus himself. When he says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you will be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let me stop there for a moment. It's very common in our culture today to live by the axiom that he talks about in verse 43. And that is, uh, you need to love, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the way most people in the world function even to this day. Jesus takes that way beyond this. He, he in a sense, blows a hole in the side of their ship at this point by saying, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And then he uses God himself as the illustration here, where imagine for a moment that you have a farmer, maybe out in the San Juan Key Valley, and there's another farmer that lives right next door to him, and they farm crops, and um, one farmer loves the Lord. This farmer is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, tries to bring his family up in a godly way, tries to live out righteousness every day of his life life, and the farmer right next door to him is an ungodly man, and he'll stand in his field and shake his fist at God and curse God's name, just the opposite. So the question comes, which farm gets more rain? You say, here in Southern California, they don't get any rain. Well, <laughs> some do. There's some rain. Which farm gets, farmer's crops get more rain? Which farmer's crops get more sunshine? See, that's exactly what verse 45 is saying. For he causes the sun to rise in the evil of the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, this is, in a sense, the general love of God for all mankind. There's no distinction between the righteous or the unrighteous in this particular case. Then he says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you, do you have? Let me translate that for you for a moment just kind of in a contemporary language. If you only do good to those who do good back to you. If you only do good to, only, to those who only do good back to you, do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than other people? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. 
In other words, if you only love those who love you back, that's really love with the 50-50 standard, right? That's what it is. I mean, uh, that's the way the world functions. It basically says, you meet me halfway and I'll meet you halfway and we'll have a great relationship. And a lot of marriages are based upon that. It's that 50-50 standard. And it sounds very fair. It sounds even American. All right, you meet me halfway, I'll meet you halfway, we'll have a great relationship. The problem with that is, if one person stops loving, then the relationship is over. Right? That's that 50-50 standard. But, he's talking about the fact that, no, 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 no. You love those who don't love you back. That means you're loving 100% of the way whether the other person doesn't return any love to you whatsoever. And by the way, I'm sorry I'm a little clogged up today because I come back from a retreat. I was just in Charlotte, North Carolina at an ACBC retreat. And then we went to Princeton and did a conference in Princeton just off the campus of Princeton University. So I picked up, it's not COVID, but I picked up a little head cold. That's why I'm sniffling a little bit tonight. But you meet me halfway and I'll meet you halfway. That's that 50-50 standard of the world. But the idea is, no, no, no. You love 100% of the way. And when he talks about the fact, in verse 47, if you only, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, he's talking about the fact that you need to be willing to love the unlovely. You need to be willing to do that. You need to love those who do not love you in return. When your wife is unlovable, (laughs) you need to love her. When your kids are unlovable, you need to love them. But you know what? It's easy to love your friends. It's easy to love your family. Real Christian testimony is that this is the very thing that makes Christianity stand out from everything else in the world, and especially Christian men, their ability to love and care for others who could care less about them. That, that's really critical. Um, go over to John 10 just for a moment while we're still talking about this. And by the way, these guys are going to have to probably stop me because any one of these questions I could probably go all night on. But all right, let's go to John 13. Let's go to John 13. After Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, what does he say? He says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Well, the problem with this is that's not a new commandment. Back in Leviticus 19:18. Bible's very clear, we're supposed to love one another. As I said, it's not a new commandment. Well, because loving other people is not a new commandment here. That's not the part. The loving other people, even as I have loved you, is the new commandment. What is that? The fact that he was willing to go around and wash all the disciples' feet, even the one whom he knew was going to betray him. In other words, that is loving the unlovely. And then he says in verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. 
That's how everyone will know that you are one of his disciples if you have that kind of love for one another. So the first thing has to do with humility. I, I think that's critical for biblical masculinity. The second thing has to do with a biblical definition of, of, of biblical love, that is being willing to love those who do not return any love to you. Because why? It's very easy to love those who love you back, right? It's extremely easy to do that. But it becomes very, very difficult to love those who are unlovely, who are hateful, angry, mean. And yet this is one of the chief characteristics of who Christ is. I mean, if that were not true, then you and I would have never known the love of Christ because we were the ones who didn't really love him. And yet he loved us. So I think that that is um, critical. There's a third characteristic, and boy, you know, I almost hate to stop at three, but I will, for your sake. All right. Third characteristic that I think is really critical here, and that has to do with a complete and utter denial of, of self. A complete and utter denial of self. Um, let's go back to Luke chapter 9. You may be familiar with this, but let's look at this carefully. Jesus talks about, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So, if, if you're going to be the kind of a man that exercises true masculinity, you've got to be willing to deny self there. This is much more than just giving up bubblegum for lint, all right? What does it mean to deny self? It means to deny Self. In our culture and society today, we train people to love self, stroke self, cater to self, make all kinds of excuses for self. That's the way our culture is designed. Everybody does that. But for the Christian, and especially the Christian man, there has got to be utter self denial. And then he says, take up your cross. Well, the cross back in the first century was where they crucified infamous criminals. In other words, the idea is that you are supposed to take up your cross and treat self like an infamous criminal. You say, how often? He says, daily. Daily, you have to nail self to the cross. Daily. Every day you get up, you have to nail self to the cross. That's treating self like an infamous criminal. Why? Because as believers, we don't live for self. 
fact, one of the great evils of self is that it loves itself too much. That's one of the great evils. Nowhere in the Bible, at any place in the Bible, does it ever say that we love ourselves too little? You understand that, right? Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that. The Bible is replete with warnings that we love ourselves way too much. And that's why we get ourselves into trouble. That's why we get depressed. That's why we get upset and angry. Because we believe that life should come in way up here. That's a, that's a real love of self. This is what we really think we deserve. But frequently life comes in way down here. And it's the disparity between the two that makes us now so depressed, so upset, so angry. You have to nail self to the cross every day. That's the idea. I tell a story back a few years ago out of Masters University. I'm sitting in my office grading papers, which is the bane of every professor. All right? You can't see it, but there's papers on my back right now that need to be graded. All right? It's just bunches and bunches of papers. I should be at home grading, but here I am with you. All right? All of these papers that need to be graded. I'm sitting, grading papers, grading papers. All of a sudden, this young lady who I happen to know, she's an undergraduate student, but she was a senior, came to the door, knocked on the door, stuck her head in, said, Dr. Street, got a moment? I looked at all my work, and I looked at her, and I looked at my work, and I looked at her, and I go, I know these things don't take a moment. I said, sure, come on in. So she walked in, plopped down in a chair, looked at the floor. I said, what's wrong? She said, I hate myself. I said, you do? Well, are you depressed? Yep, yep, depressed. Are you miserable? Yep, miserable. Now, I know not to ask this question, but I do anyhow. Uh, Why do you hate yourself? (laughs) Anytime you ask that question, be prepared for a long answer. Okay? So she started in on all the reasons why she hated herself. 35 minutes later, she came up for air. Okay? I've been sitting there listening to all the reasons why she hated herself for 35 minutes, right? Carefully noting everything that she has to say. And at the end of it, I said to her, I'm really confused. And she said, why are you confused? I said, well, listen, I'm trying to put myself into your shoes. You say that you hate yourself, yeah? You told me you were miserable, yeah? You were told me, you told me that you're depressed. That's correct. I said, well... If I truly hated me, if I hate me, and all of these things that you just described for me, and by the way, some of that stuff goes like, I'm too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not academic enough. I have big ears. I have a crooked nose. I have the wrong complexion. All right, type of thing. If all of this stuff is true about you, and you truly hate yourself, 
I'm trying to figure out why you're so miserable and depressed. She said, why? I said, well, if I truly hated me and all of these things were wrong in my life, that was true, then I'd probably be saying, ah, it's what I deserve. I hate me after all. So all these wrong things are what I deserve. But you're not saying that. You're really depressed over this. Where does that come from? It's where life comes in, right? It's the disparity between the two. So she had tears running down her face. She said, nobody's ever told me this before. So I took her to several passages in Scripture that showed her where the Bible says that we love ourselves way too much. I saw her in the cafeteria the next hour. I'm sitting across the cafeteria watching her. All right? She's going through the salad line, comes with this big bowl of red cherry tomatoes. She has tongs in her hands, and she's picking up one cherry tomato, looking at it, putting it back, picking up another one, you know, putting it back, picking up a third one, finally found one, puts it on her salad. I'll say, now, what is she doing? I know. She hates herself. I mean, she really hates herself. So she's looking for the worst cherry tomato in that whole bowl. That's not what's happening. You know that, right? What is she looking for? The best one, right? Why? Because that is our default nature. That is our default nature. Looking for the very best. Luke 9, 23 any, any man is going to come after me. He must deny self. That means treat self like an infamous criminal. Nail self to the cross every day. And then positively follow Christ. Those three characteristics, humility, a biblical definition of loving the unlovely, being willing to completely deny Christ, You, you find a man like that is characterized with that kind of characteristic. That is a man who has a heart for Christ. And that is the type of man that's going to, in his own way, turn his world around and upside down for the sake of Christ. Those three things. That was question one. So I think we should continue our prayer night from last weekend, you know, and just close in prayer. <laughs> There's enough to dwell on. Um, but it's good. I mean, it's such a good reminder. Humility, love, and self-denial. And, and I think a lot of us think about and even listening and saying, yeah, I want to be humble, but yeah. I want to love, but. Yeah. And I want to deny myself, but. So we have this constant battle in our heart and our mind going on every single day with everything that comes. So what would you say is the most important area? What are the most important areas for a godly man to really guard their mind when all this battle is happening, everything that comes from the outside, from the inside, and just pursuing, being humble, loving more, and then also in self-denial? Wow. Yeah, this is really good. Here's another one that we could spend a long time on. 
I, I, there's one thing that I believe that you need to understand and that as believers, we've got to guard our mind like a very delicate garden. It, the mind is the type of thing by nature of the noetic effects of the fall. You say, what is that? Noetic effects of the fall is basically sin's impact upon our thinking ability that bends all of our thoughts towards self-centeredness. That's the noetic effects of the fall. Uh, there are numerous characteristics of the noetic effects of the fall that stem from that bent in our thinking towards whatever pleases me, whatever makes me happy, whatever is going to help me have whatever it is I want in life now dominates and controls my thinking. And then that stems into almost every area of our life, from the work that we do to our relationship with our wives, to our relationship with our children, and it stems into everything in our life. It is a delicate garden, and these weeds easily grow up in it, and they constantly have to be cultivated. Um, grab your Bible, let's go back to um, Proverbs chapter 4. This, this is a critical uh, question here, because uh, Proverbs makes it very, very clear that the mind is the control center of life. It's going to affect everything you say and do. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4, and we're interested in verse 23. It says, watch over your heart. Now, let me stop there. Oftentimes when we're reading our Bibles, we commit what often is referred to in hermeneutics as a semantic anachronism. What is that? That means that we read a modern-day idea into a biblical word. All right? That's a semantic anachronism. We read a modern-day definition or idea into And one of the things that we read into the word heart is we read it from a European-American perspective, and that is the heart has to do with the feelings and emotions and romance and those kind of things. Because that's what you see on Valentine's Day, right? Hearts all over the place. Cupid shooting arrows through hearts, those kind of things. That's, that's the heart, according to our culture. But in the Bible, that's not the heart. There are several places we can show this to you, but I don't have time to. And that is the Old Testament word lave or the New Testament word cardia. Um, that word universally throughout Scripture actually is in reference to our thoughts, our plans, our purposes, our intentions. That's the biblical understanding of heart. It's not feelings. It's not romance. It's thoughts. Okay? That's a biblical understanding of heart. There's another organ of the body the Bible uses for feelings, and that's, uh, well, Ephesians 4.32, bowels. Paul says the bowels of compassion. Uh, so next Valentine's Day, if you really want to be biblical, you're going to send your sweetheart a card with bowels on the front of it, and Cupid's shooting arrows through bowels. Or if you really want to be biblical, all right? Otherwise, if you tell her from a biblical perspective, I love you with all your heart, she ought to slap you really good. 
because you, that means you just have good thoughts about her, right? No, she's looking for emotions. So if you're going to be biblical, you can say, I'm going to love you with all my bowels. That's, that's what you are. Anybody that's been constipated knows how emotional that is. <laughs> so that, that's the idea. So when you read that, verse 23, watch over your heart. It, you can substitute the word mind. With all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. In other words, everything else comes out of that, right? Then he goes on and says, verse 24, put away from you a deceitful mouth, put a devious speech far from you. Why? Because your mind controls what you say. The attitudes that you adopt, your approach to people, all of that controls what you say. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. So your mind controls what you look at. What you look at on the internet, gentlemen, in relationship to pornography, or on your cell phone, your mind's directing that whole thing. There's the noetic effects of the fall being played out in your life on a regular basis. It controls your eyes, verse 26, 27. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. So your mind controls what you say, what your eyes look at, and where your feet take your body. It is the control center of everything you do in your life. Therefore, daily maintaining and keeping the garden of your mind clear, clean from all kinds of evil, self-centered, anything that you think is going to bring you some kind of self-gratification, always thinking about how can I best glorify the Lord? How can I best serve other people? How can I best love them? See, which goes back to our three things in terms of humility, love, and denying self. Those three things that make up the core of who Christ is and our masculinity. So it is the mind. Um, Go over to Proverbs 20 and verse 5. Look at this. A plan in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. In other words, a lot of people have a lot of deep thoughts. Deep plans, purposes. Hebrew term that's used here for plan is the word that actually has the idea of planning or purposing. In a man's heart, it's like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. If you go back to chapter 19 and verse 21, many plans are in a man's heart or mind, we could say, but the counsel of the Lord will stand forever. We could plan a lot of stuff, but ultimately, the stuff that we plan, the stuff we think about is going to fail. It's going to fall way short. But God's counsel is never going to fail. It will never fail, ever. So how do you do that practically? By staying in the word of God, by thinking God's thoughts after him, by desiring God's desires after him, by focusing on 
on what is it that I could do in order to be of greatest benefit with the short amount of time that I have in this life for Christ? What can I do? Uh, I minister to a lot of people who, a lot of men who, <coughs> excuse me, who are dying, they're dying of cancer, <coughs> tumor, some kind of problem. And one of the great privileges we have, sometimes as elders, is to be able to walk those kind of people into heaven. But frequently, people will say to me, uh, what should I think about what's going on here? I don't have very much time to live. And I always ask him three questions. Uh, <coughs> can God heal you? The obvious answer is yes, right? He can do anything. Well, the second question is, has he? No. Does it seem like God has healed me? Well, the third and all important question of this then what do you suppose he wants you to do about that? My father passed away many, many years ago, back in 1985. My mother was a widow for several years and remarried a wonderful Christian guy who became my stepfather. He was dying of colon cancer, and he asked me that question. He said, what do you think I should think about it? So I asked him those three questions, and he thought to himself, he says, I believe with the time that I have remaining here on earth, I want to be the best testimony I can, the best example I can for my two sons, his biological sons, who are not believers. And he certainly was. And inter- interestingly enough, one of those two sons gloriously came to Christ after he passed away. So <clears throat> you're thinking always in terms of what can I do in your thinking and mind to further Christ. If your thoughts degenerate into a, a, to a level of what can I do to satisfy myself or in terms of sas, uh, self-gratification, which, by the way, all kinds of sin are fueled by covetousness or greed, especially sexual sins, then you're in trouble. You're really in trouble. Uh, as a man, but you've got to keep your mind pure. You've got to keep your conscience clean. Uh, You've got to keep focused on what is right and eternal, not on earthly things. Um, There's so much more I could say about that, but I've got to stop there. And and just so you know, yeah, we have some water here for you. Could you bring me my case, but no, 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 yeah, that's it right there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Dr. Shree, I dare not interrupt you. <laughs> I mean, this is just gold as far as I'm concerned, and you're so thorough. You're, you're touching upon so many things that uh, we're hoping to get to, which is great, because you're doing it within the context of other things, and it yeah. just builds on itself. Yeah. So it's almost better than sort of isolating these questions. So I don't know about you, but I'm not going to interrupt you. We're going to let you go. Plus, we probably have a couple hundred guys that look pretty frustrated saying, shut up, let them talk. Well, you so, go until midnight, right? That's right. We, we, so we have time. Yeah, we're going until midnight. So 
let me let me sort of tie these next two questions together. Yeah. Um, the men want to know about apathy or lack of interest or lack of enthusiasm. I think because we all sort of have ebb and flow in our life. We have times when we're just not as motivated. We're not as as uh, sort of gung ho and motivated. Um, and the question is, you know, what are the what are the leading causes to that? Why is it that uh, maybe we don't have as much consistency and we have this maybe up and down? And maybe we can tie that into the next question is, which is, why is it so hard to maintain and develop a consistent prayer and devotional life? Yeah. Um, apathy can be caused by a number of different things in a person's life. And this is where it calls upon you to be really genuinely honest with yourself. That's very difficult to do. Um, But you've got to be brutally honest with yourself about why you are so apathetic. For example, let me give you a, a few examples of this. Number one is, I think one of the reasons why a lot of men are apathetic about studying the Scriptures is because they've really not been taught how to do it well, right? Because every time they read the Bible, they read the same thing. And so if you're reading the same thing over and over again, you can have a tendency to get apathetic about it. It can be true with anything, right? It can. But when you have really developed good Bible skills, you may be reading a text that you're very familiar with, but you're actually discovering things in that text you never discovered before. Now, why is that? Because you have trained yourself or you've received kind of some kind of training that has helped you with hermeneutics, that is just principles of biblical interpretation, helped you observe and make valid conclusions about what's going on in the text. One of the things that greatly helped me in Bible study many, many years ago (coughs) was understanding not just the grammar of the text, that's important, but also the historical background of the text, which helped the text to live for me. Okay? In our Joint Heirs Fellowship group right now, we're, I'm, I'm preaching through the book of Ruth, and um, I'm, I'm on my 12th sermon in Ruth chapter 1. <laughs> now, years ago, I would have never, ever been able to develop 12 sermons from one chapter, but it's hard for me to get out of that chapter because the more I study it, the more things I'm able to see and the more things I want to highlight that's coming out of that, and it just drives me deeper and deeper into the text. The thing that really helped me more than anything else was understanding the setting of the book of Ruth during the time of the judges. The latter time of the judges, latter part of the judges, and what was really going on during that time in Israel, how that affected Elimelech and Naomi and so on, And then there are all kinds of just thoughts that explode. Okay, that explains why they did this. That explains why this happened. You come onto the last verse of Ruth chapter one and you find that that 
Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem during the barley harvest, and all of a sudden, when you read that, you understand the historical background. That's very, very significant because the barley harvest was right during the time of the celebration of the Day of Atonement. And here's the future, the great, 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 great grandmother of the Messiah coming into Bethlehem during the barley harvest, during the Day of Atonement. The significance of that is just explosive. Way before the Messiah ever came along. But you're not going to understand that if you don't understand a little bit of the cultural background, a little bit of the historical background of what's going on in the book. It makes that live. Anything that can help you to do that is going to enliven your Bible study to, to study it. The Bible is a, it is a deep book, and you'll, you can never, ever probe its depths too deeply. You can't do it. Uh, I've been doing this for almost 45 years, and I, and I can't do that. I just can't. But that's only because what excites my study of the Word of God is the fact that I have forced myself to observe. And I think you see this even in our own pastor, John MacArthur, all the time. It's the reason why he can take a passage of Scripture you've read a thousand times and he can bring out and explode new insights into that particular passage of Scripture that you've never, ever thought about before. Where does that come from? That comes from his own developed skills and abilities of observation in the text and his careful study of the background of that text to make that thing explode, and then it lives for you. It lives for you. It's hard to be apathetic when you're doing that kind of work. This is more than just casually understanding what the Bible says. It's more than that. It's realizing that there is a depth of truth there that is second to any, second to nothing else in the world. And you're probing that depth of truth. The Bible is, is key to our, obviously, the way in which we form our thoughts and our aspirations and the plans that we make and the desires. But it's also key to the fact that it's got to change us. And this is one of the, this is the second thing, by the way. Good biblical skills of observation, but the second thing has to do with this. I think that in a lot of conservative Bible-believing churches, and I'm out all the time speaking at various conferences and doing Q&As like this, and I, I am absolutely convinced that a lot of conservative, very good Bible-believing churches One of the reasons why Christians are so apathetic is because their prayer life and their Bible study is a ritualism that they feel that they've got to do on a regular basis. Otherwise, they're not godly. It's almost as if this is another standard stand of legalism, Phariseeism in Christianity today. Why? Well, because the goal of the Christian life is not Bible study. And I love to study the Bible. Don't you dare go out of here and say, John Street says you're not supposed to study your Bible. Don't you dare go out and say that, because that's not what I'm saying at all. But the goal of Christian life is not Bible study. The goal of Christian life is Christ-likeness, holiness. In other words, the Bible study has got to change me. 
Sometimes in counseling, I'll say to Christians, I'll say to them, if you have Bible study every day and you read the Bible one hour every single day for the next month, and it doesn't change your life, that it's just a repeated, redundant activity. The goal of Bible study is life change. And by the way, what did Christians do for 1,450 years until the printing press was invented? People didn't have a personal copy of the Word of God. So were they ungodly because they didn't study the Bible? No, they didn't have personal copies of the Word of God. And most people back in those days didn't even read and write. But they were devout Christians. Well, then what did they do? Well, they went to church, they heard the Word of God read over and over again, and they personally committed large elements of it to memory. Ancient Christians did that. It's memory. They, they, they constantly washed their thoughts in the Word of God. We're lazy because we have copies on our cell phones, we have cop- paper copies, we have copies of the Bible everywhere, so we don't have to do that. So for 1,450 years until the printing press was invented and people had personal copies of the Bible, were they ungodly because they didn't have a daily devotional time? No. What determined your godliness or not was how much this truth is changing you. You see how this plays into apathy, don't you? If you're just doing a redundant activity over and over again, maybe you're in a job like that. And that's why you're sick and tired of your job. There's the apathy on your job. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, uh, uh. I used to work when I was going through college on an assembly line of creating mobile homes, all right? Doing the same thing every day, creating these mobile homes on the assembly line, moving them through. All right, boy, I am so thankful. I don't have to do that anymore. All right, it was just redundant. Right. Well, that's the way a lot of people have become with their Bible study. It's just be, become redundant to them. Why? Because they don't meditate on what it means in terms of life change. I would rather you read the Bible once a week and it made a profound impact of godliness in your life and changed you than for you to be able to say that you spent hours every day in it. Now, if you have the luxury and the time to be able to do that hours every day, then wonderful. That's great, especially if it's help, helping to change you. But if it's not, the tendency is that apathy starts to grow. Get apathy in your life because you're just reading words. You're just reading words. So you can tell your friend, hey, by the way, I had an hour Bible study today. How long was yours? So now it's feeding your pride, not your humility. How's it changing your life? So... These are kind of things that we get into when we, when we set up these artificial standards of righteousness. So the critical question is, in terms of your personal study of the Word of God, how are you more Christ-like this week because of your study of the Word of God? That's the critical question. How are you more Christ-like? I guarantee you that if you're doing this on a regular basis 
and you're allowing the truth of the word of God to substantive change your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions, and your reactions to life where it's molding you and shaping you, you will not become apathetic in your walk at all. In fact, it will ignite an excitement in your Christian walk like you've never had before. But it's got to change you. It has to change you. Dr. Street, would you say as a sort of um, uh, an application point uh, (laughs) to sort of make it practical in your life in terms of what you were saying, first off, uh, in terms of going deeper into the background and really bringing to life uh, the scriptures, would you say that the men should challenge themselves with things such as commentaries or introductions and things like that? Yeah, if they're good ones, I mean, I think that those are very helpful. However, you, you should not allow Bible study books to be the substitute for studying the Bible. All right, it's easy to get caught up into a commentary. It's easy to get caught up into Bible study notes, and all those are helpful, and they are very good tools. But the main thing you need to be in is the truth of the Word of God. That's where you, your main focus has got to be. If those other things are now distracting you away... Uh, from a faithful and careful study of the Word of God, then those things become unhelpful, no matter how good or how insightful they become. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Street, thank you so much for um, all this insight and all the help and the encouragement to really pursue that. And um, a lot of times when you listen... um, also to these answers, like you have to be humble, you, you need to love, you need to self-denial. Now it comes again, you, you, you need to study scripture and do that consistently. So a lot of times when you listen to that and you're like, oh, I'm, just, I'm just a simple guy, you know, and then how can I do that? And um, what, what would be your advice to us men that hear that and looking in their own life and having this constant feeling of failure um, that they cannot do it or they don't do it or they think, you know, I'm so burdened by all the stuff that I have to do. How, should, how can I do all of this? Or then the third one is, oh, well, I'm, I'm thankful that I can go to work tomorrow so I will just cover myself with work, with other things as an excuse. So what would be your advice to, again, failure, you know, constantly, you know, I'm just a failure. I cannot do this. I'm, I cannot live this great Christian life or just feeling crushed or then just, you know, fulfilling themselves through other things. All right. I, I want to deal with that failure issue because oftentimes that even comes up in counseling as well with people. Um, and they'll lay out for me sometimes when I'm attempting to help them, all the failures that they supposedly perceive that has gone on in their life and, and, uh, and how, how the world can my life count for anything is, is the idea that's there. I want you to grab your Bible and go over to Second Corinthians 5 just for a moment. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, and look what the Apostle Paul says here. He says uh, in verse 9, he says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That is such a key verse for me in terms of um, my life and in terms of whether I perceive what I've done is success or failure. Because 
there are many things that you will never see any evidence of your impact for Christ or righteousness in your lifetime, and yet you're having that impact. Um, you have got to make it your goal, and you've got to have eternal values in doing so. You, you've got to have, in a sense, a vision beyond the immediate to say, if I'm faithful to the Lord in what I'm doing as a man of God, as a father, as a husband, as a hard worker at work, if I'm faithful at what God has given me, <coughs> then I believe that God will use that for his honor and glory. And it, then it's impossible for me to be a failure. It's, it's impossible. Um, now, if you're living for self, then you will be a failure. And then we need to be warned for that, about that. And there, I realize there may be a lot of guys who will look back upon their past, and I've counseled a lot of them like that, that's, that feel that they have failed as a man, they failed as a husband, they failed as a father. And that could be true. But you also have to realize that God is an expert at taking people who are failures and turning them ultimately to great success, even if you have just a little bit of time left in your life. Our God is an expert at taking and turning lives around for good. You can't change the past. But you can certainly use the remainder of your days with these eternal values of pleasing him in everything that you do, and you are guaranteed not to fail. I'm, re I'm reminded often of uh, Jeremiah as a prophet. You understand that Jeremiah preached for 40 years, 40 years, and didn't have a single convert. Imagine that. 40 years. I mean, by American standards, he would have been a total failure as a pastor. 40 years of preaching, not single convert. So from a worldly perspective, it would be very easy for Jeremiah to look back on his life and say, I'm just a total failure. I preached repentance and repentance and repentance here in Jerusalem, and nobody ever repented. Therefore, you can see him there in the book of Lamentations, lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem as the Babylonians now are overtaking the people there in Jerusalem and destroying their homes and stuff. I, I preached about this. I warned about this. Nobody heard me. Nobody listened to me type of thing. And there for a little bit, in the second chapter of Lamentations, you can see him in Jeremiah's <coughs> self-centeredness. But then, all right, go back to Lamentations just for a moment. Look, look at this. Look at the turning point in his life. Because, well, actually, in Lamentation chapter 3, here's a lament of the destruction of Jerusalem. And in chapter 3, it becomes Jeremiah's own personal disappointment. Why? Because when I was studying this, I don't know if you can see my Bible, but I have highlighted and circled every time 
in verses 1 through 18, he talks about I or me or my. I mean, there is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. 28 times in those 18 verses, he's talking about me or I and his own personal struggle now. He feels like he's been a failure. But then, um, in verse 21, he says, this I recall to my mind. Guys who think that they've been failures need to do the same thing, the same thing that Jeremiah did. This I recall to my mind. What is he doing? This is self-talk. We don't do enough of that. Self-talk. This I recall to mind. This is what I purposely remember. Therefore, he says, I have hope. People who think they failed are hopeless. I have hope. Verse 22, the Lord's loving kindness. This is the Hebrew Old Testament word chesed, which means grace. Indeed, never cease. What is he reminding himself of the character of God? From a human perspective, it looks like he's a total failure. But God's graciousness never ceases. That's what he's reminding himself. For his compassions never fail, verse 22. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. From that little phrase comes our hymn, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. (coughs) He reminds himself of the character of God. And in doing so, then in verses 31 through 33, notice that this is the key premise for his hope. The key premise for his hope. And anybody that's been a failure needs to go here, needs to commit this to memory. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. There's that chesed again. There's that grace. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Doesn't do this. The implication is that he does this because he knows it is for our good. Grieves the son of men for our good. The Lord may take us down different paths, right? All of us have different lives that we lead, different paths that we're taken down. Why is the Lord taking you through the paths of difficulties and hardships that he has taken you to? That's a good question. And there's one other way that I like to answer this. Lamentations 3 is one, but the other one is back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because the question comes up when the children of Israel are ready to enter into the promised land, in the second giving of the law here, God now explains to them why he took them through 40 years of the wilderness experience. 
You say, wow, that describes my life. Look at all the failures of the past. Look at all the difficulties I've had. And he says in verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Now listen to this. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, did you see that really? I mean, did you really note this? Why did he take them through that 40 years wilderness experience? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Now listen, God was not testing them so that he could know what was in their hearts. He already knew. He's omniscient. He knows all things, right? He was not testing them so that he could know what was in their hearts. He already knew that. Then why was he testing them? So that they would know what was in their hearts. Why does God take us through difficulty and hardship? To teach us our hearts. Teach us our hearts. We wouldn't otherwise know it. When everything's going great in our life, everything's going smooth, we think we know our hearts. We actually believe that our hearts are better off than they really are. Then all of a sudden we're thrown into the fire. All of a sudden trial, difficulty, hardship, setbacks occur. And all of a sudden the true issues of our heart now come out, right? You go to, you go to Detroit and you go to the automobile manufacturers there. I was in Detroit last fall, and you go to those museums, and they, they take the big pistons of trucks and cars, and they put them in these high-pressure chambers, and they turn up the pressure way beyond normal operating conditions. And all of a sudden, you start to see little cracks and fissures appear in that metal, in those pistons, because they want to know exactly where that metal's going to break down. They want to see all the impurities in that metal, all those cracks and fissures start to appear in that metal. This is exactly what God does with your heart. He takes your heart, puts it in the crucible of a trial or difficulty or a setback or a loss to show you your heart. All of a sudden, the cracks and fissures come up. And during those pressure situations, when everything's going great, your relationship with your wife is terrific. Everything's going great. It's so sweet and everything. Pressure's turned up and then you start to say things that are ungodly, hateful, mean, vindictive towards her. You didn't know that was there, but it was preexistent all the time. God knew it was there. Why? Because he turned up all the heat in your life. Sometimes I, I talk about this in counseling. I'll say, listen, if I have a sponge in my hand, I hold it out over my Bible, and I squeeze that sponge really, really hard, and it makes a mess all over my Bible, why is my Bible messed up? They roll their eyes and say, well, because you squeeze the sponge. I'll say, no, no, that's not the reason why. The reason why my Bible is a mess is because there's water in the sponge. The reason why there's a mess in your life is because there was preexistent, unacknowledged sin in your heart and all it took was the trial to bring it to the surface. And all of a sudden, woo! Because pridefully, we think our hearts are better off than what they really are. Pridefully. But it's during the trials and the hardships and the setbacks that we find out that that's not the case. Wow, 
Dr. Street, thank you. That was incredible. Um, yeah, incredible. We've all failed, and we will fail again. So how applicable that is. Thank you so much. That's so good. Dr. Street, I want to shift. Yeah. I want to shift to a big topic. I want to <laughs> make sure that this gets in because it's so big. It's so prevalent. It's so all over the place now. And I think that there's plenty of men struggling with this and plenty of men that know of men who are struggling with this. And it's the topic of pornography. And praise God that we have your book. If you don't know about uh, Dr. Street's book, he has a book called Passions <laughs> of the Heart. And it is a thorough biblical theology of the heart, primarily uh, speaking to lustful issues. It's phenomenal. Highly yeah. recommended. So maybe you can give us your insight on this big topic in terms of why is pornography so powerful? Why are guys getting so enslaved to this? And maybe some basic steps to, to work through it and deal with it. And fight yeah. it. In other words, summarize the book in yeah, basically. short amount of Tell time, right? Uh <clears throat> Well, obviously, pornography appeals to the basal desires of the human condition, right? And it's not just true with men, it's true with women, too. Um, and it, with, with pornography, pleasure centers of the brains are activated. Dopamine, serotonin, bays our brains, the neurons in our brain as a result of that. And we feel uh, pleasure from that. We get pleasure from that, those kind of things. That's very, very oriented towards self-gratification. In our culture and society today, it used to be many, many years ago, you couldn't get pornography. You'd have to go down to the local drugstore or, or you'd have to go down to some kind of magazine shop to find pornography. Now you can get it on your smartphone. Now you can pull it in. And now it's way more prevalent than ever before. Um, and it just appeals, appeals to the basal de- desire of men. Take your Bible, let's go back and take a look at a, a biblical examination of really what's going on here. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 3, where it says, but immorality. And the word for immorality, there's the Greek term porneia. But it doesn't just mean pornography. I mean, that's a remote, actually a remote meaning. It actually means any kind of illicit sexual activity. It goes way beyond pornography. Any kind of illicit sexual activity, whatever it may be. But Immorality or any kind of illicit sexual activity or any impurity or greed. In other words, these things are impure. Uh, they're full of all kinds of toxic things. And greed, that word greed is so key there, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier. At the core of all sexual sin is covetousness or greed. Whatever form it comes in. At the core of all sexual sin is covetousness or greed. None of that must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And when he talks about being named among you, 
no one should be accused of this or of, of having any these kind of things happening. And then he goes on, he says, there must be no filthiness in relationship to sexual things or silly talk in relationship to sexual things or coarse joking in relationship to sexual things which are not fitting, but rather than giving a thanks. Now, there at the end of verse four, you can see this. When a person is giving themselves over to this greedy type of practice, every time that's happening, that person is either not thankful for their position in life as a single man, or as a married man, they're not thankful for their partner in life. Right? They're not thankful. Then verse 5 says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And the, the Greek tense of the terminology here is that this is the person who continually practices these things unabated. Those kind of people have no place in the kingdom of Christ or God. Now, that's such a key thing to remember. Those are scary words. But nevertheless, we need to understand them. What is it that's feeding it? It has to be the covetousness or greed that is really a part of the heart. What I think is going to make me happy. Let me use an illustration of this back in Proverbs 5. Go back to Proverbs 5. We'll pick up verse 21. Here he's talking about, earlier in the chapter, maintaining proper sexual relationships within uh, a binary, monogamous, heterosexual marital relationship. But then he says in verse 21, Proverbs 5, verse 21, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all of his paths. You need to remember that. God scrutinizes. That word watches is actually a word that means he scrutinizes all the details of our lives. God's watching, even in private. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. Now, that's very significant. It's not talking about literal cords, but these are cords where you believe that you can't say no to this activity. I was counseling a man and his wife several years ago. They had been married for about eight years and he had been unfaithful to her on four different occasions with four different women during those eight years. It was amazing that the marriage was still together. And at one point in the counseling, he leaned across the desk and he looked at me and he said to me, you don't understand, this is just the way I am. And I said, really? You want me to accept that this is just the way you are? Yeah. I knew he had a four-year-old daughter. And I said to him, I want you to imagine just for a moment that you're having a sexual relationship with the woman, the last woman who is not your wife. His wife was uncomfortable with this, but I asked her to be patient with me. 
What are you going to do if your four-year-old daughter walks in on you? What are you going to do? He said, that would never happen. I said, I'm not arguing whether it would happen. I want to know what you would do. He said, I'd probably cover myself over and another woman over and try to get her out of there as as quickly as possible. So you know, right in the middle of a sexual act like that, you have the capacity to be able to stop, right? You know that. You have the capacity to be able to do that. He said, yeah. said, what is that that enables you to do that? He said, I don't know. He says, I, I don't want my daughter to see me. I don't want her to see me in that situation. Say, so you know that your daughter viewing that in that situation is a high enough motivation for you to stop whatever it is you're doing. What does the Bible call that? He says, I don't know. I said, the Bible calls that fear of man. Fear of man is always stronger than sexual drive. That's true 100% of the way. Fear of man is always stronger. You know that. Only in this case, it's fear of your daughter. Now look at verse 23. It says, he will die for lack of instruction. Now the word instruction is really the Hebrew word self-discipline. He will die for lack of self-discipline. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Now, what is his folly? His folly is he believes, verse 22, in other words, he believes his feelings more than he believes what the word of God says. His feelings say, I'm caught, I can't say no to this. Every time I have this urge, I have to follow through with it, no matter what. The Bible says, you have more self-discipline than you know. Because the fear of man is greater always. It's more powerful than sexual drive. Now, we need to get to the point in counseling, I said to him, where verse 21 is a reality. What is that? Where the fear of the Lord is your greatest motivation. That is what is going to bring this kind of practice to an end. And then he understood me. But he wanted, to, he wanted me to just accept the fact that he had this unusual drive that he couldn't say any no to. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that at all. If you go to Brazil, I've been in Brazil many, many times, past uh, help counsel lots of pastors and Christians in Brazil. They have a real big problems with this. And most women in Brazil during the time of carnival expect their husbands to cheat on them. And when you ask them, why do you expect that? It's because they say, well, that's just the way men are. I said, no. No, that's not true. The Bible says that men don't have to be that way. They can change. They can grow. All depends on what they want to do. There's so much we can say about that, but I talk about that in the book, and it's a quick summary.
Exactly. So read the book. That was the <coughs> statement. Just one practical question to the topic of pornography. And I got the question here uh, about confessing sin. And why are men more inclined to hide their struggles? And what would be your advice um, on confessing to your wife the lust you have in your mind, or we confess it to God, but how many times should we confess it to our wife? Probably not every day, um, as it says, uh, as the question asks. At what point should a Christian man confess sexual sin to his wife on a spectrum of a sexual immorality, masturbation, pornography? What is the biblical standard for that? You know, I'm really glad that question is asked because that actually gets asked a lot of the time in counseling, too. So uh, let, me, let me see if I can answer that clearly for you in, in a brief way. Um, you've got to understand that confessing something like this um, to your wife becomes necessary if you know she knows or if you know this has affected your relationship to her. Now, that's such a key thing, and you've got to be, again, brutally honest with yourself in answering that particular question. Um, if this is going to be a personal battle on your particular part, and we run the risk of confessing every particular sin that we've ever committed to other people or even to our spouses, and we end up glorifying sin, so much so that all our spouses think about is our sin every time they see us. We don't want that to happen. We want to glorify Christ. But if it has affected your relationship to your spouse (coughs) in a a very negative way, where uh, now you're not as intimate with her, you're not fulfilling what 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 talks about, where it's your job in order to make sure that she's absolutely fulfilled sexually. That's the Christian mindset when it comes to sexual relationships. It's not self-gratification again. It has to do with fulfilling our spouses. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4. If your mind is oriented in that way, then then you're going to be totally dedicated to make sure she's fulfilled, whether you receive any fulfillment or not. It's not the issue. It's just so it's that God has designed us in such a way that when we fulfill our spouses, that we are fulfilled as well. But um, let, let's give it an instance. If, if taking a look, observing pornography and then self-gratifying yourself becomes a a pattern in your life. Then it's taking all the energy of your sexual energies away from your spouse, then that needs to be confessed. Because if you have no interest in her because of your self-gratifying ways, then you've got a problem. And by the way, self-gratification or masturbation is the highest form of greed-oriented sex. We said at the core of all greed, or our core of all sexual sin is greed, that it's the ultimate form. 
Masturbation becomes the ultimate form of that. And there are some Bible scholars that believe masturbation is one step away from homosexuality because it's the same sex satisfying the same sex. No, no. God never intended that to be the case. He created you sexually with a desire sexually so that you can satisfy your spouse, not for self-gratification purposes. That's not your purpose. And by the way, here's a key thing. Nobody, no man in the history of the world has ever died without getting it. I know they think they're going to die, but no man in the history of the world has ever died without getting it. You feel like you're going to die, but you're not. Nobody has ever died. So you can learn to deny self. There's nailing self to the cross every day. Maybe I can follow up with one more question before we go into more in depth in the area of marriage and family, because we're here till midnight. Um, because a lot of men ask themselves about, you know, okay, gratifying my wife, and then they probably, like you said before in counseling, have a lot of questions why, and then go back to the 50-50 that you did at the beginning, which I like, so you can erase that and say it's 100%. So how would you advise husbands married men to maintain or regain the romantic attitude and pursuits with their wife in marriage without going into too much detail. What would you advise on that topic? <laughs> that, it, that's an interesting question um, because the Bible doesn't really talk about romance that much. I mean, it does. At Song of Solomon, if you read the Song of Solomon, certainly... Um, Solomon and his bride are certainly intimate and romantic with one another. Uh, that, that's a good thing, but it doesn't make that as the ultimate priority. What it does make as a priority is the fact that you need to set, you are dedicated. See, this is the reason why, 1 Corinthians 7, go over there just for a moment. This is the reason why the word duty is used. It's very strange for us in our culture today. But what he says um, in verse 3, he says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. See that? First Corinthians. Well, now, why does he say duty? Because we don't often look at sexual relationships as having been a duty because the focus of his thinking is, I am here to satisfy her whether I receive any satisfaction or not. That's the goal here. So whether or not I feel like I'm being romantic or whether I am romanced is not the important thing. But if that's important to my spouse, if that helps her sexually, then I'm going to be as romantic as I can be for her sake. So now you are fulfilling your marital duty sexually. I think in our culture, we have a tendency to think that sex is just something that naturally happens between a man and a woman once they're married, and it's just going to happen on a normal basis. Uh, no, no, no. This is something that you have to intend. It's obligatory 
and it's important for you to do. And then the question then comes, well, then how frequently? I get this in premarital counseling all the time. They kind of ask the question, all right, well, how frequently do we do this? I don't know. The answer to that is, is your spouse satisfied? And if they're not, then you have to up the frequency. All right? That's going to be the key question. Is your spouse satisfied? That's going to be critical. So this becomes, from a biblical perspective, that becomes the alignment of our thoughts in relationship to the fact that this is duty. Whether I experience things that are romantic in that or not is not important. If it is important to my wife, then I want to make sure I'm as romantic with her as possible. If that's going to help her, that's what I want to do. Okay? <coughs> These are the type of men who are willing to be giving all the way with their spouses. And they're not looking for what they can get out of their wife or get out of their marital relationship. Now, obviously, when you have a guy that's fully dedicated to his wife like that, I'll show you a happy wife. And usually a happy wife that at that particular point wants to do everything she can in order to satisfy her spouse. So now you've got two parties dedicated both directions. But where does it start? It doesn't start with her. It starts with you. You're the one who's got to start it. Amen. <laughs> well, staying on the topic, Dr. Street, of sort of uh, marriage and family, here's, a, I think, a very important question. Many of the men here are married. Many of the men who are not married are looking to get married. So they have asked, what does it practically look like to lead a wife? Oftentimes, you'll even hear, shepherd your wife. But what does this look like practically? How do you lead a wife on a day-to-day basis? And also, what might contribute to being a poor leader and why? All right, 1 Peter 3, 7. Let's go over 1 Peter 3, 7. Look at this carefully. I think one of the key things here that most men miss here is this concept here in 1 Peter 3, 7. This is written to men, husbands, who are married to unbelieving wives. The context tells us that. So what if you have a Christian husband, he's married to an unbelieving wife, um, how should that husband actually lead his wife? Which is a great question. And notice here, it says, you husbands, in verse 7, in the same way, what is he referring to? He's actually referring back to chapter 2. This is the way Jesus Christ dealt with unjust suffering. You need to live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, that I don't like that translation of that because that tells a lot of men that, okay, I live with my wife in an understanding way. After all, She's a woman. <laughs> All right? Now, that's not what it's talking about. The, the Greek term that's used there is the term gnosis, which uh, actually means knowledgeably. 
He's saying, you husbands, in the same way, you live with your wives in a knowledgeable way. Now, let me tell you something, guys. I've had 45 years of counseling and working on all kinds of marital issues and marital problems. And I hope that I'm not making too broad of a generalization here, but a lot of guys, the vast majority of the guys that I'm counseling with, they don't know their wives at all. But their wives know them a lot better. They don't know their wives. And here he says, if you're going to be a good husband, you've got to live knowledgeably with your wife. You've got to understand the way that God created women. You've got to understand the particular load that your wife bears in life. You've got to understand her gifts and abilities and talents. What are they? The reason why a lot of men fail in their relationship is they do not study their wives. They don't know them. Um, And he says, you need to dwell with them in a knowledgeable way as with someone weaker. Now, that's not talking about a woman actually being physically weaker. You may be able to argue that, but that's not what he's talking about here. The the Greek terminology here is with a a clay pot. That's really it. A clay pot back in ancient times used to carry water. If you set it down on a sharp stone or something, it would easily crack it. There were broken pottery all over Israel. If you go to Israel, it's broken pottery from ancient pots all over the place. All right? In other words, the idea is that you're supposed to treat a wife gently. That's the way a husband's supposed to treat a woman. Always gently, like you would a clay pot easily crack. Or sometimes I like the illustrations that you need to treat her like a 5th century Ming Voss. Right? 5th century Ming Voss. Worth millions. Now if you went down here to Walmart and you bought a $25 a little flower pot to put flowers in, you check it out, put it in a plastic bag, throw it in the back seat, take it home, put it up on the mantel, put dried flowers in it, dust it off occasionally. But if you inherited a 5th century Ming Voss, I doubt very seriously you'd pick it up, throw it in a plastic bag, put it in the back seat, take it home, put it up on the mantel, put dried flowers in it, dust it off occasionally. No, no, you'd probably hire Brink Security to go pick it up. What would you do with that? I know some guys say I'd sell it and it ruins my whole illustration. <laughs> but what would you do with that 5th century Ming Voss? You'd get an atmospherically controlled vault. You'd strap it down on a really soft pillow to transport it. Your wife is that 5th century Ming Voss. Treat her like you would a delicate clay pot. <coughs> Uh, He says, since she is a woman, that's a positive statement, not a negative one. Since she is a woman. By the way, she was in creation. It was not until Eve was created did God eventually say, now that's very good. Not until that. Every other day of creation, 
He called it good, 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 good. The whole universe good. It wasn't until Eve was created that he called it very good. And show her honor, picks up on the same idea, as, a, that word as is really key, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Here within context, she's not. But if you're supposed to treat an, an unbelieving wife this way, how much more should you treat a believing wife this way? so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, a lot of guys who think that their prayers aren't getting any higher than the ceiling, first thing you need to do is check your relationship with your wife so that your prayers are not... God says, basically, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to listen about what you want until you are treating your wife honorably like a 5th century Ming Voss. Then, when you're treating a wife that way, then, you have, then you're treating her in a proper way. That's what should be happening. Are you okay for one more question? Sure. I mean, we're out of time, and we want to respect the time from all of yeah. them. Um, and we heard so much, and we're so grateful for all your insight and... Yeah. I'm thankful that it's recorded so that we can really go over this because there's so much in it and also for me as a husband just to apply that. And if we hear about what we have to do and we talked about struggles and sins in our life like pornography and lust and we had also on our paper anger and then we talk about what it means to be a biblical husband and a leader and then also about that we're not leading enough. So the last question is more like, and also when it comes to parenting, because we had the same questions about parenting, what, how do you lead your children? What, how do you be a consistent spiritual leader for your kids? So last question is really like, how does a man heal and repair the emotion, the emotional wounds that he caused towards his family, the, the hurt, the pain, the failures in not leading and not being the godly husband. What are some advice, like by closing, in a sense? So how do we repair? What should we do? And also when we go home. We understand that if a guy has been mean and angry and hateful for many, many years towards his wife and his children... That's not going to be repaired overnight. There's not going to be any instant answer to that. Why do I say that? Well, go back to Proverbs just for a moment. Chapter 18. Look carefully at verse 19. A brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Now, Once a person has been offended, once trust has been betrayed, it's hard to trust again. If you violated trust with your wife, if you violated trust with your kids, it's not an easy road. I'm not going to make this too simple. It's going to be difficult. Why? Because here he uses 
warfare terminology back in ancient times where he says, a brother is harder to be one than a strong city and contingents are like the bars of a citadel. It's like assaulting a well-fortified city. Your wife and your kids have built up now a wall because you've taken advantage of them through your anger, your meanness, your violence um, towards them. And that's not easy because they're not going to want to trust you. (coughs) But you've got to be willing to lay siege to this city over the long run. What do I mean by that? There's nothing like genuinely seeking, well, genuinely repenting and confessing your sins, first to the Lord, then to your wife, then to your children, that you know uh, that you've done, that you've sinned against them, and seeking their forgiveness. Now, they may not want to forgive you, especially initially. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek it. You need to go out of your way to be able to help them to see that you're sincere about that and you're grieved over your sin. And you need to communicate with them in such a way that you tell them how you intend to change for the future. How do you intend to change for the future? Um, And then stay to the plan. And then do it. Over a period of time, hopefully, as they see your life, that wall will come down. They may even be able to initially say, okay, I forgive you. But that does not that does not necessarily mean they're going to immediately and completely trust you. And you show your insincerity when you start demanding their immediate full trust. Right? You can't demand their immediate full trust. You have to earn that. They're willing to forgive you, but can they trust you? Go back to Proverbs 3. Look at verse 29. He says, Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. The greatest violence ultimately here is that there's been a betrayal of trust while he lives securely beside you. This is, this is what verbal abuse, emotional abuse is about. Misogynistic actions towards women where you act like you hate women. You are violating trust with your wife or with your children when those kind of things happen. And that's not going to be rebuilt overnight. But you've got to, the, the road to rebuilding that starts with an open confession and an open repentance. 
towards them. That starts the right process. And then, of course, if you're genuinely repentant before God, then you're going to do everything you can to bring about the necessary changes in your life and your attitudes towards them and towards the circumstances of your life so that they are now God-honoring and Christ-like in everything that happens. So, uh, go over to chapter 11 and verse 29 of Proverbs. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be a servant to the wise-hearted. So, if this has been a part of your past, this is going to be part of the windstorm of your life for a while. But can there be real unification? Can there be total and complete reconciliation with your wife and with your children eventually? The answer is absolutely yes. But you've got to go on a long siege for that to happen. You're going to have to, in a sense, lay siege to their citadels because they have put themselves into protective bubbles, walls from what you've done in the past. And those walls are not going to come down easily. So it's going to take time. Um, And you're going to have to demonstrate this every day for weeks and maybe even months and sometimes even years that you're really substantively a changed man. They'll see it. It'll have an impact. If before you act like the devil, now you'll act like Christ, they'll see that difference and it will make an impact in their life. Thank you, Dr. Street, for this amazing Q&A. I mean, it was such a good time just listening, and I could have continued till midnight because we have tons of more questions, but we're so grateful for all that you shared with us. And like I said at the beginning, he is a man of the word, which you realize probably um, by tonight. Um, So I would love to ask you, do you pray for us? Um, Just... Bring us before the Lord. I think it's good to end this Q&A with just reaching out to our Lord and Savior. I mean, you you said at the end, there's hope. You know, we want to make the best use of our time that we have and we don't know. So we just want to commit us to the Lord. Sure, sure. I I want to say this to you men. What's going on here in our church with men of the word is just such a tremendous blessing. And uh, the impact of it that Dr. Clausen is uh, having in the leadership team here and those of you who are leading the, the groups here is just profound and we can see it already in our church. And let me tell you, a lot of the elders recognize that and we're so grateful for what you guys are doing. So let's bow for prayer, shall we? Gracious Father, we are so thankful for the hope that the Word of God gives us. We're told over and over again, Father, that we've got to have this internal perspective. In this world, we will face trials and difficulties and temptations and hardships and setbacks and losses, but ultimately in eternity, 
we will understand better why this happened. And we've got to keep our minds set, as the Apostle Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, on pleasing you, on bringing glory to you through the difficulties and hardships that go on in our life, with, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships with fellow believers and those outside of the faith, being a good testimony to family members who are not believers. Father, I pray that you'll raise up a whole host of godly men through this ministry and through our church that will have a profound and very effective impact for the sake of Christ. So we commit them to you and to the strength of your grace. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.